Once upon a time in old misty Wales, there's a woman or a being or a goddess called Ceridwen. People argue a little bit about Ceridwen. Some people say she's a deity. Some people say that she's a housewife with a penchant for witchcraft. Why can't you be both, I would argue. Now, Ceridwen had one ugly son, an ill-favoured son. He was called Morfan. And whilst there wasn't much she could do about making him pretty, she reckoned she could probably make him wise, and if she could make him wise, she may be able to attract the attention of someone like King Arthur and get a better life for her kid. So with her propensities for witchiness, she got working on a potion. And of course, like all good potions, it was going to take one year and one day to complete. She got a lad from the village to help her, a boy called Gwyn Back, and he stirred, he stirred, he stirred. Until, of course, inevitably, some would say, towards the end of the experiment, three drops leapt out onto that rotund thumb of his, caused him pain, he stuck it in his gob, and suddenly was rooted to the spot with holy illumination. Well, of course, Keridwen sensed in the ether something had gone awry and she chased after the little bugger. Now, with the new firepower in him, Gwyn Back found himself falling, falling into the shape of a hare. Keridwen took on the shape of a greyhound. He took on the shape of a salmon. She took on the shape of a fierce otter. He became a little bird. She became a hawk, queen of the skies. Finally, he became a little grain of wheat. She became a big black hen and she gobbled him up. And she thought that would be the end of the matter. But she felt, as women sometimes do, a little spark of light waking up in the lonely croft of her hips. She was up the duff. Nine months later, the baby was born. She couldn't strangle it. She couldn't dagger it. She couldn't do any of those things to it. So she placed it in a little coracle and she sent it off down the river of fate and destiny, just like we did to Moses, just like we did to Dionysus, just like we did to Tristan, just like we do to all our children. And in the end, his life would give him a new name. He would be called Shining Brow, or as we tend to know him, Taliesin. I wonder what kind of name you are going to earn with your life or I will earn with mine. About 25 years ago, I sat on a big hill in Wales in Snowdonia and I looked out over the Irish Sea for four days and four nights. Didn't eat a thing. And somewhere in the last night of that extended contract with the mysteries I fell into the shape of hair in a small way 
or the shape of a salmon or the shape of a bird or the shape of a grain of wheat and I was never the same again. Now I tell this story today in honour of the woman that I'm going to be speaking to. She is undoubtedly the writer's writer. She's called Jay Griffiths and Jay lives in Wales. She lives where that story comes from. She's written many books, Pip Pip, Dristomania, Kith, a brand new one, Why Rebel? You may know her best from her book called Wild, which is called a travel book, but it's far, far more than that. Anything that she reads or anything that she writes and I read is thrilling and filled with crackle and vitality. So I'm going to be talking to Jay and we will just see where the conversation shifts and shapes itself. And I hope that in some small way, you find it useful too. Jay. Yes. My dear friend. Good to see you. And to you. So, I always think of you and a particular word comes to mind and the word is fidelity. I've never met a writer who shows such fidelity to her skill set and her gifts, who attends in the temple of writing like you do and reaps extraordinary rewards. Your ears would be burning frequently whenever me and Paul Kingsnorth get together because at some point oh. you're always part of our kind of imaginative trio and the thing the thing one of the things I think that puts you in such a, a beautiful place for me is that unlike me and probably to some extent Paul as well I only want to write about two or three things and I will probably circle around them for the rest of my life but you you seem to have a much wider remit than that. I always have in my head at this feeling that you could put anything in front of Jay and if she, look, <laughs> if she looked at it long enough, the, the, that, that lovely little hand would start to make magic. And so my, my, there aren't many questions today, but one question I would have is, did you ever imagine another work for yourself? Did you ever imagine there'd be something else you'd do with your life? Um, not seriously, but for a while when I was a teenager, I thought that being an educational psychologist would be really, really interesting. What, what, what it was for me is that, like for many people who love books and reading when they're a child, is that I thought writers were gods. And so it was really arrogant to say, when I grow up, I'm going to be a god. <laughs> you know, so, so I think kind of thinking about being an educational psychologist was a bit of a way to, you know, just to step around that arrogance. But I think what you say, I think it, I, th I think it's right. But I think the thing is that everything is interesting. I had a conversation with a friend of mine years ago and he said, is there anything you're not interested in? And I said, yeah, football. And he goes, right, I'm going to take you to a football match. So we went to a football match and I was absolutely transfixed. It's fascinating. <laughs> but I suppose the thing is that, 
you know, you say you've only got a, a handful of things that you want to write about when you start to write. I don't think that's true. I think what it is, is that what you're interested in, your way of being interested is, um, you could say superficially myths, but it's actually soul. And it's soul and the natural world. And in a sense, if you take something that's that big, you know, as I might say, kind of, you know, I'm interested in kind of, you know, the psyche and language and the, and the living world life. If you take things that are as big as the subjects that you take, or indeed I take, then, you, you know, then then it's like everything does come into it. Everything does. I mean, I feel a bit like, you know, I'm just going straight in with the, with the, with the heavy artillery here. But, but it's like... What more incredible experience could there be, apart from maybe being an octopus? What more incredible experience could there be than being in possession of a human mind with a human language and also with the availability of such extraordinary wisdom, facts, knowledge, you know, that the, in a sense, I feel like there ought to be a sort of an incumbent curiosity for all of us, and that it takes a certain amount of confidence, and that everybody should, everyone deserves to be given a kind of authority of curiosity, that the world is theirs for, for, for the asking. And I don't mean that you can be a millionaire and you can be anything you like, as you write about that total silliness of a narcissistic age but the sense of knowing and caring it is it's available for us all you know knowing and saying I care about that snail mm. I'm going to find out about that thrush you know it's just from anywhere that we are we can go somewhere now I noticed in your new book that I would love to to talk about why rebel is that you thank your mum in it could you tell me a bit about about your mum and what she laid out for you as a kid? Oh yes, I can. It's that essentially when um, when I was putting that book together and I was thinking, okay, what is that feeling of kind of the um, the very very earliest traces for me of the green world and language. And both of them are absolutely intrinsically wrapped up with my mother. You know, it's like one of my earliest memories was traipsing around the house after her, trying to remember the alphabet. And I just went, it was like I learned it as if my life depended on it. I just had to get it. I knew I had to get it. It must have been like, you know, the child version of Abacada. But every time I got to W, I got stuck. And so I just remember countless times I would kind of, you know, I would be pulling on my mum's sleeve asking, what is this? You know, that strange little letter. But it was also my mother who kind of taught me like the, all the first names for flowers that I know. Like forget me not. That's one of the earliest flower names, and a daisy, and a daffodil, and a dandelion, and all these things. And also taught me that it mattered, mm. that it mattered without complexity, that it it had an absolute integrity and a depth, and that the green world mattered, mm. and the words mattered. Thinking about that, and thinking about what you'd said earlier, which is the audacity required for a while to even believe that you could be this thing called a writer. I read constantly as a child. I grew up in a house seemingly of impoverishment, but the impoverishment 
didn't go so deep. We didn't have a telly, we didn't have a car, we didn't have a phone, but we had tons of books. And I had, and I have to this day, a mum and dad deeply invested in words and language. So really, I'd won the kind of Willy Wonka ticket, but no one would have guessed that in an early 1970s Britain. It looked like I was uh, on the margins. And I remember as a child not doing well at school, education terribly difficult. But one day, my name, Martin Shaw, and I've got these two middle names. And if you put it all together, I, I did this as a six-year-old in my little book, MJP Shaw. And I thought to myself, that's like a writer's name. It's like, it's like a writer's name. And I never showed it to anybody. I was too ashamed. I was ashamed of like the the grandiosity and that my mind was suddenly filled with fur and light at the thought of being MJP Shaw. And maybe I'd write books like Just William, or like naughty, <laughs> naughty boys, naughty boys running around orchards, stealing apples and toffee and, and throwing their cloaks down in puddles for damsels. All of that stuff was going on in the work of MJP Shaw. And, but of course, like you, I thought, well, you know, even as a child, even existing half the time with my wonderfully unformed brain, even then I thought, that's, that's never going to happen. No one told me it wouldn't. I made the decision inside myself. And then what I'm wondering now for you is what tipped it in your teenage years or your early 20s, tipped it from thinking, well, I better do something else into thinking, no, fuck it, I'm going to write. It was like a compulsion. I think that's the best I can say. I don't think that I actually could have done anything else. And if I had done anything else, I would have done it badly. And I would have been really, you know, kind of soul sickened. Because I do think that people need to, you know, that lovely Joseph Campbell thing of kind of follow your bliss, that idea that, you know, and the idea of the diamond that Philip Pullman uses, that you do have to do what it is that the absolute earliest kernel of you, which is also a kind of old soul, needs to do. And to refuse it is to cause enormous damage to yourself. How are you finding this, you know, extraordinary kind of incubation that we've all been in to some greater or lesser extent over the last year. Uh, one of the things I'd love to hear more about, because it affected me in a totally different way, was the Extinction Rebellion work that you've been involved in. And of course, that was all going on, unless my memory is incorrect, in the year kind of leading up to what we then tipped into. I just wondered, I mean... How, how are you doing with it all? How am I doing with lockdown yeah. or with the Extinction Rebellion? First of all, uh, lockdown. Okay. Well, for me, um, it was a very strange, um, <laughs> for everybody, um, but what happened for me was that I was, um, at the beginning of lockdown, my father died, not of COVID, but in the early part, which was very hard time and then um, almost immediately I split up with my partner which was also a very hard time and what I did then was um, I couldn't write I couldn't 
read. So actually what I did was I had this kind of completely like insane schedule where I got up every morning about six or something and I went for a massive mountain bike ride because I love mountain biking. And then I'd have lunch and in the afternoon I dug up one weed, just one weed, because it was this plant that had gone rogue in my garden. And it was supposed to be like three feet, one meter in every direction, three feet up, three feet wide, right? And it wasn't, it was about 20 feet up, 20 feet wide. And it had dug its roots through a brick wall and into my neighbor's garden. It was so wedded to the stones and the soil and the brickwork that it took me every afternoon for six weeks to dig up one weed. And it was so hot. So I was running sweat and running tears it was just like this incredible embodiment of grief. And I just worked like a Trojan every single afternoon, one weed. And guess what it was called? Please tell me. It was called The Devil's Tears. Oh. Isn't that incredible? So I was down a hole because I had to dig like two feet, three feet down, right? So I was in a three-foot hole, like kind of half a grave, crying and sweating and digging up the devil's tears for six weeks. And after six weeks, I just went, I think I'm all right now. (laughs) And then the second part of it with the, you know, going into the winter lockdown is that I really thought this is going to be very hard. This is this, you know, because I do feel subject to depressions. I am subject to depressions. And I thought this is going to be really hard. So what I did in October was I thought I'm going to take antidepressants. I'm going to stop drinking alcohol. And because I find the evenings difficult on my own, I'm going to cancel them. So I just went to bed really, really early. And I got up stupidly early. And I also gave myself a project to read all the books that I'd been given in the previous 10 years which was about 200 books and I gave myself a project that was pretty much too hard to do and I thought that is going to keep me busy what I'm going to have to do is from the moment I wake up at about five or something like that I'm just going to have to be so busy that I literally can't sit down until I just fall asleep at nine o'clock and that's what I did it was I kind of went a little bit berserk on this sort of overwork but I thought this is the only way I can do it to be honest so in other words, because I, I wondered, I wondered if you'd look at me and say, actually, lockdown has been almost identical to my usual writerly schedule, and I barely noticed it, uh, but clearly not. Well, in some ways, it was an augmentation of my writerly schedule, you know, so it was, you know, in some ways, what I was doing was I felt so aware that so many people were in a much worse situation you know, in a really small house with a partner they didn't like or an abusive situation or, you know, children who were needing homeschooling and who were themselves really upset, people who were doing kind of, you know, homeschooling and work from home, people who were ill, people who'd experienced bereavements that they simply couldn't cope with. Also, you know, I live in Mid Wales, so I step right outside my door and I'm in one of the most beautiful places on earth. And, you know, and I had the green and the freedom. So in a sense, I did try to say, look what I've got and not look what I haven't got, but look what I have. Mm. And have you stayed off the source? Pretty much, actually. I do I do have a couple of bottles of beer about every week or something. I've got one indoor friend, well, and my mum. So I have 
drunk a few glasses when I've seen my mother or my indoor friend. I'm delighted to hear that. Now, I'm talking to you from my cottage where I've been, uh, you know, squirreled away this whole time. But a few years ago now, probably, I think, probably about five years ago, you and I were walking along a different stretch of the same river. It was the Dart. And you told me then about a kernel of idea you had around a book of essays. And interesting, though it sounded on the day, what you've actually manifested is far more exciting than the description a book of essays would normally give warrant to. And so what I was wondering is if you could kind of walk me through how how it all came to be. Because this book that I've been lucky enough to see just, just a, a second before it comes out, Why Rebel, it's full of so many things that I love. I wrote a little list this morning. You know, there's there's shamanism in it. There's the mysteries of childhood in it. There's animal law in it. There's the freaking grail story in it. There's insects as angels in it. There's Extinction Rebellion quietly reintroducing chivalry. I mean, I don't want to give too many games away here. Uh, There's you emerging from jail at 5am on Easter Sunday. And and the book ends with your court defence. It's an incredibly important incredibly moving book it's a very urgent book how did how did it all come to be <laughs> how did it come to be well you see the thing is that um some of the things that i have been writing about it's a bit like that thing of kind of that we were talking about at the beginning where if you you know if your interests are primarily in life the psyche language and the green world it's like you know that there are things which which you'll look at they will draw you and so I had written a couple of essays including one about fascism and the way that Italian futurism is very like the libertarian mindset that we see today and that fascism intrinsic to the Italian futurist ethos and so then I had various other essays and I was looking to put them together and actually to be honest the person most responsible was my editor at Penguin, who was looking at a wider set of essays, and he just suddenly said, Jay, I think I've got it. If you put these essays together, and then the through line is activism, of actually kind of doing something about it. Um, And so he had that sense of the through line of it. He also had that sense of make it right now, make it, you know, as you say, kind of urgent. And also because some of the things that I was writing about were um, completely heartbreaking. And it's also, it's a moment of real danger that we're in real danger and this isn't a sort of you know this isn't a sort of you know a hysteria in order to manipulate fear it is saying it as it is so how he saw it was go with that thing of speaking right to the moment and make it you know make it short so he was very responsible for putting that through line in it I, I've become a great fan of editors as I get older 
and a good relationship with an editor, I think is absolutely worth its weight in gold yes. for precisely yes. those reasons. That little overview, that little, those few steps back. Yes. Because it does have this kind of tempo to it. And one of the things that really is, uh, as a writer, I, I think is especially praiseworthy is how beautiful you handle the erudition of the book. In other words, I am fully aware of how much you actually had to read to write it, you know, uh, and the way you handle, you know, all, you know, the enormous terrain of shamanism, the enormous terrain of Joe Campbell, all of these other areas, the energetic pulse, the echolocation of, of the book is never lost. You know, when I look back at some of my own stuff or other writers, when you are drawing, you know, on that vast reservoir of of of, of other other sources, it, the the energy can drop. Suddenly, it just feels like you're you're in a kind of chess game and you're just moving bits around. And there's none of that. It there's a great. It never loses its energetic. It never loses its tempo. But it does do an incredibly generous job of pointing to a reader of all sorts of other resources, all sorts of other places that they can get educated. You passed it on. Well, bless you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I mean that most sincerely. That is uh, as well as your, you know, great and effervescent brilliance and originality, that heavy lifting that sometimes writers are rather reluctant to do, you do and you do it beautifully in this book. Uh, it's a great testament, not just to yourself and your own work, but what, what stands behind you. And that's part, I think, of the business of being a, a real human being. You know, that's what human beings should do. Around the time that you were doing the Extinction Rebellion work in London, I was getting calls at the same time and people were saying, listen, you need to put your money where your mouth is and you need to turn up in Trafalgar and you need to do, need to do this stuff. For all sorts of reasons, primarily because I'm a single parent, it was just terribly difficult for me to drop things and go down there. But I felt the truth of the request that it would be good to have a kind of storyteller in the mix but luckily you were there. You know, there was a storyteller there in the mix. But I did make a kind of quiet deal with it all, but it was very different. I decided that rather than putting my muscle into a public display, which I thoroughly believe in, I was going to do something different. And from October of 2019 through to late January of 2020, I underwent a 101-day retreat. So I kind of did the opposite. Rather than out, I went in. But what I did was I went to a local forest, Dartmoor Forest, and I simply listened. Every day I brought what I call calling songs. So I brought a story or a poem or something that lived in the jabber of my jaw and I gave it as a gift and I tried not to take anything other than what the wood wanted to harass me into. This became an enormous 
life-changing experience. Even as someone, as you know, that's lived in a tent and has spent thousands of hours out in the wild or scurried away in caves, I could not have anticipated the sheer um, depth and spiritual harassment this was going to put me through. Wonderful though it was, it was the morning I finally crawled back to the cottage because I'd spend a few hours a day out in the woods. No one knew this was happening, not even my daughter. I'd make excuses and just nip off. I crawled back to the house and it was only hours later that I, I found out, you know, not only was COVID coming, another kind of enforced period was beginning. So I began this process excessively sensitised already. You know, I think if you live in rural locations, I think if you are not just imaginative, but if you do, if you're really entangled with the living world, all sorts of things in it show up and, and talk to you. And it's been very strange to go from that kind of encounter into this second kind of hermeticism, which I did find much more difficult, actually. And the thing that I did, slightly different to you, but it's a similar thing, I recognised, finally, I had a moment to get fit, physically fit. And so, you know, I, I run three miles a day. Like you, I decided to keep an eye on the drinks cabinet. I dug into the writing. But certainly by now, something that's been happening to me, and I, I said this to you earlier on, is that my, my writerly gifts, such as they are, have improved. But I've been finding a kind of, people talk about a kind of lockdown brain fog and I am forgetting people's names. I'm forgetting, you know, I'll say, you know, it's, it's, oh, Tom rang me up, Judith, Kate, Francoise. Oh, you know, no, 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 I mean the cat. And I, I don't think this is the early onset of anything particular. I think I've just gone down some very deep rabbit holes with the writing, which I adore and I'm, I'm very pleased with. But anything else that I'm not regularly engaged with has kind of gone uh -huh. away. And I think that's one of the things, you, you mentioned your partner leaving. One of the things I think loved ones do is they interrupt usefully, for me anyway, the trails of my imaginative thought. Sometimes it's good for something to cut across it. Whereas I've had now almost two years where I can follow any thought right to the end of the sentence, right to the end of the line. So I suddenly realised I was really out where the buses don't park. <laughs> the last time you and I were really sort of on the road together, Tristamania had just come out. Yeah. And we did a me, you and Paul were at Way With Words down in Devon. And one of the things that I'm working into at the moment with my writing, I'm very much because of this experience, is my relationship with melancholy. Now, melancholy for me usually is a useful encounter. I don't associate it as the same thing as depression or manic depression. Mm. But I wondered, what's your relationship with melancholy like? 
That's a very interesting question. You see, what I would theoretically like to say is that it's important that it represents a kind of fallow period, that it's kind of, you know, it's the bit where one is kind of tender and sensitive to the world and the rest of it. And actually, to be honest, I think what it is is that um, I've experienced depression both directly and indirectly to the point where I just hate it and I hate anything that's close to it but I think there is something important about saying that the idea that our spirits must be kind of constantly up and bubbly and that we must be constantly kind of emotionally efficient and you know and that we mustn't kind of be slower and off the radar we mustn't kind of spend too much time where the buses don't park (laughs) but in a way I can see that that is a mistake because one of the experiences of melancholy and not depression depression I think makes one completely disconnected that's part of its horror but I think one of the things that melancholy does is that it actually makes us very connected to the the pained speaking of other things to the, I think it can make us quite self-forgetting. And I think that self-forgetting is a really important thing to be able to do too, especially in this age that we live in, especially because it's like, you know, we've done away with God and the gods. We've done away with the sense of the, the spirited land. And then we've kind of propelled ourselves into this into, into this thing where we must all sell ourselves and we must all, you know, as you say in your book, kind of, you know, that idea of like, you can be anything you want to be, you quoting the world wisdom, you can be anything you want to be, and you say really sharply, no, you can't. And it's very important also because in that sense of being able to forget oneself, that's when you can step across, that's when you can really try to feel the sense of another person but also that you can step across into the experience of animals that they are the kind of filaments of our tenderness that we have our own senses but we don't stop here with the skin and with our hearing and with our sight is that that given enough quietness inside is that you can actually pay proper attention to the nature of the trees, the roots, the insects. And I think actually talking of insects, I would say that maybe one of the most powerful experiences of melancholy as opposed to depression that I've experienced in the last many years was when I read about the um, the death of the insects. Mm-hmm. It was in 2018, wasn't it? Late 2018. There was a lot of coverage about the studies on the collapse of insect populations. And I just suddenly started reading everything that I could about them. And I literally cried for three days. And it was like an intense melancholy because what what I felt like was I entirely and rightly forgot myself, rightly, because that willingness to say, I don't matter, it's really important and not not in the sense of kind of, you know, self-abnegation and sort of lack of self-belief and all the rest of it, but just actually stating the damn obvious, I don't. I don't matter any more or any less than anything else. And actually then this wretched, yapping, egotistical, monomaniac, narcissistic, infantilizing world of modernity can shut the fuck up. 
and just that feeling when you know for those three days I don't think I've ever felt less self-important in my whole life it was like I just suddenly went oh my god look what we're doing to the insects I actually get it because partly it's that thing of they're the tiniest and they are the most important they're the insects which give us life the birds life the flowers life the you know they are the life on which almost everything depends and we're killing them with insecticides that will ruthlessly slaughter their lives on which everything else lives and then also that aspect of like they are the tiniest of things and we through our technological power are the greatest of things that is the way in which of course there's climate of course there's the the oceans but in one sense that is where we could write our own death warrant really really fast and yes I did feel I felt a melancholy which actually enabled me to properly step across and to kind of actually properly get it Mm. It is odd, isn't it, with the facts that you're speaking of are common knowledge. Yes. And yet we remain in this kind of tacit execution of not just the planet, but ourselves. Yes. The connective tissue is writ large for anyone to see. It's extraordinary. On, On a slightly different note... Can you now say to me a bit, well, it's, it's on the same note, actually. Your, your book is saying this is why rebellion in the romantic deep sense of things really matters. So what do you think was going on and is going on for you with Extinction Rebellion? What do you mean for me? What I mean for you is, you know, for some people, it's something they read about briefly in the paper 18 months ago. For you, it's gone much further than that. And something that I come across again and again in in your work is this old indigenous idea that when we say the word psyche, an awful lot of psyche exists outside our body. I have a great tendency to kind of clutch my chest and speak about the deep interior as I'm referring to something in here. But of course, from an Aboriginal perspective, the deep interior is the earth. And so it is not anthropocentric to recognise yourself in a lightning storm or an antelope, the movement of an antelope. It is deep bone memory of the real truth of things. You, with all of that bubbling, with all your your psychonaut activities down deep into the soul of yourself, you know, as I said, you catch taking your TARDIS journeys around the place. At the same same time, that doesn't, the connective tissue for you then means, in, in a simple way, I suppose I'd phrase it, reverie should lead to participation. Reverie should lead to participation, not inertia. All your work reminds me always, it's like coming into the energetic of some, some old love affair I'd almost forgotten. And suddenly <laughs> I'm oh, fuck, I'm in love again, I'd forgotten. You know, it's, a great, it's a great reminder of the stuff that matters. So I suppose that's kind of what I was asking, was with all of this, these worlds that circle in and out of you, you also elected to do something on the street with it. Mm. It was it was quite funny how I heard about it. What it was was that a friend of mine was at a, f- 
festival and she came back from the festival and she and she said, Jay, I've got this for you. I met your friend Shane and he said, give this to Jay. She will love this. And it was this little muddy leaflet that just had the two words at the top, extinction, rebellion. And as soon as I saw those two words, I went, you've got it. You've absolutely got it. And there are many things that seems to me really important about Extinction Rebellion. One of them is the complete commitment to nonviolence. That is incredibly important. And also the discipline of that nonviolence has been remarkable. Everyone that I've known in Extinction Rebellion has been somebody who has already done a lot of different work in a lot of different ways as lawyers, as doctors, as teachers, as as religious people, as artists, as musicians, people have already done a lot in terms of what they can locally, in terms of making as much of a commotion about this as possible. And yet it wasn't in the public discourse. And this is where I think that one of the things that was so difficult with the climate and the whole ecological emergency was that it was something that it's been too big to talk about and too amorphous. It's too enormous. It's not like a kind of a war with an individual or even another country. These are easy narratives. It's a very difficult narrative to say, look, we're collective perpetrators and we're collective victims and it's so enormous like where's the traction where's the kind of where's the grip where's the way in where's the little thread and what I think Extinction Rebellion did was actually say particularly in that week in April when it was all over the press it was absolutely everywhere is that what Extinction Rebellion did was it turned silence to speech It pushed it into the public discourse, not least because there were loads of people who were kind of saying, you know, that they totally supported us, that, you know, including the police at that time, were openly saying how much they supported what we were doing because it had to be done and you guys are doing it. Thank you. But it also meant that there was a discussion from all the people who hated what we were doing. Great. It was being spoken about. It was, and suddenly it was like there were conversations about climate change over the garden fence. There were conversations with people that maybe had never spoken before about it, always just been haunting them. And suddenly it was properly in the public discourse and to turn silence to speech in basically 10 days in, it was a piece of genius. Thank you. So I don't know what is about to happen in Wales But I know that in this country, we are only, you know, a week or so away from the pub garden and a pint of Guinness with a few pals. And I will I will I will quietly shudder with joy at that moment. Uh, And I, I just never knew. I did not know how much I missed that kind of thing. So I just wondered what. You know, we've heard a little bit about how you've navigated this strange time. You've come out of it with this great jewel, which is the book, you know, all underworld experiences in initiation. If they're successful, there's something you get to pass on. You know, that's that's a great thing. You've come out with this wild bit of gold. But I wondered now, you know, as you look as you look at the the few months coming, what's the life for you at the moment? What are you interested in? Oh, <laughs> well, I've got a commission to write about going to Prague. Oh. But obviously, it's neither legal nor safe. So I'm going to write about not going to Prague. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to not go to Prague with somebody that I've never met. I'm going to ride on a horse with no name called Herbie. 
we will fly back. I'll take Otter, my cat. My cat is called Otter because he came to my house on the day of the Otter, according to the French Revolutionary Calendar. So a horse with no name, a cat called Otter, and a parrot who can't fly. We will all fly back to Flandegli International, which is... Which is an airport that has terminals one and three marked on the A44 because there is no terminal two. There is also no terminal one and three <laughs> because, of course, Llandegli International is open only for flights of fancy. So that's where I am at the moment. Just fantastic. Fantastic. Well, look, Jay, thank you for being so generous to taking this time to speak to me. And... Um, Long may you endeavour in your imaginative burrowings and your uh, external wonderfulness out on the streets and everything <laughs> where between. Uh, thank you for doing what you are doing. Strength to your arm, courage to your heart and keep going. Oh, Martin, bless you, bless you. And 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 also, can I just say thank you for, for the smoke hole because I absolutely love it. I've loved everything you've written. And I just think that what you know that what you're doing is you're saying, look, there is a world there beneath our feet where wisdom is, where humor is, and where what matters grows. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. And I'm so delighted. Bless you. I'm left with just a little detail from Jay's book of her walking out of a prison cell for her protesting with Extinction Rebellion. On Easter Sunday, the rock had been rolled away. There she is. Jay is a very modest woman and would probably not associate herself with the great Celtic... Um, warrioress Boudicca but I as her friend petition for that on her behalf Boudicca had 120,000 warriors at her back they say when she faced off against the Romans she had a spear in her hand she had her daughters by her side and she called she kind of screamed it out they say like a warrior shriek to Andrasta the unconquered goddess. She called on Andrasta to bring the Iceni victory, which they soon got. But a little detail that people often don't know about Boudicca is that underneath her cloak, she had a hare who was telling her things. When she had a question, she would release the hare from the cloak and if it ran straight ahead, that had information in it. If it curved this way and that, it had information in it about the success of a battle or a love affair or the movement of the stars. So I sit here now by this cold, wonderful river in this cold, wonderful part of Britain. And I ask you, what animal do you have? under your cloak. Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smoke Hole and 
If you'd like to help us out and get word out, think about maybe rate and review. You could subscribe. You could tell people. And generally, Jimmy the algorithm. Ha, ha, ha.